Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we'll be discussing book three of Homer's Iliad. Last time, we discussed book two and uh, Agamemnon's responses to his uh, the dream that Zeus sends him. Um, and then we were helped by Thucydides in considering the catalog of ships. Once you look at it with or through Thucydides' eyes, I think you can start to see a lot more is going on in the catalog than it seems. Um, so today we turn to book three. Um, I started looking at a commentary by Malcolm Wilcock, and he points this out at the beginning of his account of book three. He says that book three contains two alternating themes. The first is the single combat between Paris and Menelaus, and the second theme is the people within the city of Troy. So we'll look at these two uh, different points and try to draw out what's going on between them. So let's start with uh, the beginning of book three and the buildup to the fight between uh, Paris and Menelaus. Uh, okay, so as book three begins, we find both the Trojans and the Achaeans marshaled. The Trojans are making noise like birds who flee from winter storms and who then bring death to pygmy warriors. The image seems to present the Trojans as loud, moved by external or seasonal conditions, and who, after being thus moved, find themselves ready to bring death. The Achaeans come on strong in silence, breathing combat fury, hearts ablaze to defend each other to the death. So we could ask this, or this seems to be the first question that Book 3 asks us is, what is more scary, a noisy horde or silent, well-ordered men? The shouting is an attempt to signal that one is scary, almost like a dog barking. But the silence seems to inspire more confidence in as much as it displays a confidence that one's deeds are all that are needed to carry the day. Um, that the deeds will reveal the men as who they are, and who they are is more than enough to win. Um, with no need to pretend that one is more than one is, or um, <clears throat> uh, as the yelling attempts to do. Now, this opening scene is immediately followed by a telling simile about mist and thieves. Uh, so I'm going to quote the simile. Quote, When the south wind showers mist on the mountaintops, no friends to shepherds, better than night to thieves, you can see no farther than you can fling a stone. So dust came clouding, swirling from the feet of armies, marching at top speed, trampling through the plain. End quote. On the face of it, we could schematize the simile and say that the south wind is to the mist as the feet of the armies are to the dust. If we do that, we might then be tempted to leave it at saying that this is a colorful or poetic way of describing how much dust is in the air. But something stands out when we look back over the simile. Why is it said that the mist in the mountaintops is better than night for thieves? This detail is either unnecessary or it points us to something important. Um, I almost sometimes think the worst thing that you can say about a Homeric simile is like, oh, it's, it's very beautiful. Um, of course, it might very well be beautiful or sometimes they're ugly. But nevertheless, they seem almost more intentionally structured or more carefully done than almost any other part of the book. And so I think when we slow down to take a close look, we can see that more is going on. 
Um, so uh, we're led to ask this question um, when the mist is said to uh, be good for thieves, which is to say, who is the thief? Why does Homer want to remind us about thieves? An easy and plausible way to answer this question is to say that Paris and the Trojans are the thieves, for they took Helen away from Menelaus. However much sense this might make, I would like to propose an alternative reading that doesn't necessarily contradict this reading. If we read this passage with Thucydidean eyes, as we did when we looked at certain passages in the Catalog of Ships in Book 2, we could say that the mist that is good for thieves is uh, metaphorically something like this. Being able to use Helen as a beautiful pretext for trying to loot the wondrous riches of Troy. Now, the simile on its own isn't enough to confirm this thesis. It does, however, prepare us to look for more evidence. Our first piece of thief evidence emerges when Paris is considering taking up single combat with Menelaus to decide who will take Helen. Strikingly, Paris mentions that whoever wins combat should get Helen and all her wealth. This detail tells us that Helen is not... <clears throat> that Helen is not all that this that is at stake in the conflict between the Achaeans and the Trojans. This detail also might supply part of an answer to a question that many students ask. Why don't the Trojans just throw Paris and Helen out? Why are they holding on to them? Why don't they just give them up? You know, Hector uh, tells Paris that it would be better if he wasn't born. Um, and we see that at least one potential answer um, is that not only is Helen spectacularly beautiful and a kind of ornament to one city, but she also must have great wealth. Um, indeed, we'll see a passage much later in the Iliad where we learn that Paris has bribed um, a Trojan who is uh, angry with him. So it could be the case that this great wealth has made it much easier to hold on to Helen in spite of the great danger um, that's posed by uh, the Achaeans. But we'll set that aside. Um, and also, we will momentarily bypass uh, or jump past Priam and Helen's conversation in order to look at something closer to the end of Book 3. Um, we'll look at Agamemnon and Priam's conversation. I think that this will provide a little bit more evidence that the Achaeans themselves uh, might be considered thieves in addition to the Trojans. Uh, so Agamemnon and Priam... Uh, meet to cement an agreement that single combat between Paris and Menelaus will settle the war. The weight or gravity of both of the leaders is needed in order to confirm that the results of the duel will be respected. So a messenger reaches Priam and says the following, quote, They are calling for you now, commanders of both armies, stallion-breaking Trojans and Argives armed in bronze came down to the plain so that you can seal our oaths. Now Paris and Menelaus, Atrides loved by Ares, will fight it out with their rugged spears for Helen, and Helen and all her treasures go to the man who wins. The rest will seal in blood their binding pacts of friendship. Our people will live in peace on the rich soil of Troy. Our enemies sail home to the stallion land of Argos, the land of Achaea, where the women or a wonder. Striking, end quote. Strikingly, Priam shudders at this prospect. Why does he shudder? Perhaps he is too old to be a warrior. That's why he's not leading troops on the battlefield. 
And perhaps he's worried that if he shows up on the battlefield, a sort of lumbering, tired old man, that he will find himself captured and things will get far worse for him and for his city. In other words, he takes a big risk as an older man stepping into a zone where he has to trust his enemy's word, or at least trust in his own men's ability to protect him should things turn ugly. Nevertheless, he gets in his chariot and he meets with Agamemnon. Agamemnon greets Priam and tells him the terms of the agreement. At first, Agamemnon mentions the exact same terms that the herald had told to Priam. But then, without pausing or hesitating at all, Agamemnon adds this striking term to their agreement. Quote, But if red-haired Menelaus brings down Paris, the Trojans surrender Helen and all her treasures, and they pay us reparations fair and fitting, a price to inspire generations still to come. But if Priam and Priam's sons refuse to pay, refuse me, Agamemnon, with Paris beaten down, then I myself will fight it out for the ransom. I'll battle her to the end of our long war, end quote. And with that, Agamemnon seals the so-called agreement by slitting lambs' throats. But by adding that a Menelaus victory will lead not only to the recovery of Helen and her treasure, but also to a monstrous reparation payment that will be so staggering that it will inspire generations, isn't Agamemnon making it much less likely that the individual combat will actually end the war? That is to say, supposing that Menelaus wins, won't Priam be in a position to claim that Agamemnon unfairly added harsh terms to the deal at the very last second? Priam will be able to say with conviction and confidence that the Achaeans have dealt with the Trojans in an underhanded way and will therefore not return Helen or her treasure, or pay the reparations. And, for his part, Agamemnon will be able to paint the Trojans as unjust for not fulfilling their side of the bargain. So, if Menelaus wins, it would seem that both sides would have a reason to keep fighting, and both would generally feel as if they got the raw end of the deal. Um, now, of course, Aphrodite transports Paris out of the fighting before Menelaus can finish him off. And so the fighting continues. But it would see that Agamemnon did everything in his human power to make sure that no matter what, as long as his brother could defeat Paris, that the war would continue and that the Achaeans could keep fighting for all of the Trojan, uh, all of the Trojan treasure. So to conclude our thinking through the thesis of the opening simile from the book, um, I present Agamemnon's approach to the terms with the Trojans as evidence that, in a certain sense, maybe the Achaeans are the thieves who are protected by the mist of the beautiful pretext of uh, recapturing Helen. Um, we could put it like this. It sounds much worse to everyone involved, I think, if you say, we are stronger than the Trojans and would therefore like to seize their good things. It sounds a lot better to say, we are punishing the injustice of the Trojans. In that case, seizing their treasure is an unintended consequence of doing what justice requires. Um, so in other words, we could say that sometimes people have a hard time just admitting straight out or upfront that we are pirates uh, who are going to take your good things from you because you can't uh, keep them yourself. 
for whatever reason, even when people are effectively doing that, it seems to be the case that human psychic architecture, at least for most of them, require that they are somehow able to justify getting their good thing by saying that it's also just that they get it. Or at least that's what the argument here seems to suggest. Okay, so that's our first uh, argument. Okay, now let's take a step back and look to the city of Troy and look at the conversation between uh, Priam and Helen. So um, Priam asks to speak to Helen, um, and he goes to ask her about the Achaeans. Now, we could see him as a charming and sweet old man who delights in hearing a beautiful woman describe things. But as much as that explanation is plausible, we also see that he's able to ascertain some things of great tactical value. Um, that is by asking Helen who the great champions of the who <clears throat> by asking Helen about the great champions of the Achaeans, um, who seem to stick out, that they physically stick out and stand out above and beyond all the other men. By pointing to all of the men who seem to be particularly physically notable, he's able to learn something pretty important. Um, he's able to ascertain for himself that Achilles is not on the battlefield. It obviously makes all the difference um, in approaching a battle with the Achaeans as to whether Achilles is there or not. And as we see in her survey of the heroes, Achilles, of course, is not there. So, um, if we compare the end of book two to this part of book three, I think we are led to ask a question. Is there something similar uh, between Helen's activities and Homer's activity? Um, so, I have three points along those lines. So, we learn in book three that Helen is weaving a dark red folding robe that displays the endless bloody struggles between the Achaeans and the Argives. In other words, she creates a kind of artistic image of the war, not unlike what Homer is doing with his poem. Um, now, of course, it is probably worth thinking about what's the difference between a visual representation and what a song is doing. But even that, thinking about that, a song isn't something completely rational, and neither is um, a painted image something that's rational. Or at least both of these kinds of things are designed to affect our sort of like pre-rational or intuitive sense of things um, prior to us getting to think about them, um, to think in a kind of logical way about them. So whether or not there's a huge difference between a song and a a robe. There's a lot to say about that, I suppose. But at any rate, both of them are creating um, artistic constructs that will preserve the story of the war for us to um, understand it or feel things about it. So that's one thing. The second thing is that book two ends with Homer asking the muses to help him sing about the catalog of ships. We could say that book three features Priam asking Helen to offer a kind of catalog of who the leading Achaeans are. So these two events are sort of very close to each other chronologically within the story. So we see just as the muses help Homer, so then um, Helen helps 
preeminent in understanding who each of the Achaean heroes are. So she herself leads a kind of catalog. Okay, the third point <clears throat> is that, and this was maybe a little bit less obvious than the other two points, but I'll bring it up for your for you to think about anyway, is that during Helen's account of the Achaean heroes, she speaks very sparingly of Ajax after Priam asks her to. And indeed, she immediately starts to talk about other heroes directly after that without being asked. Um, so she mentions only two lines about Ajax. And yeah, the quote is this, and Helen in all her radiance, her long robes replied, why? That's the giant Ajax, bulwark of the Achaeans. And Idomeneus over there, standing with his Cretans, like a god, you see. So there's probably a lot to say about Ajax, but nevertheless, uh, very little is said. Now, if you compare this to how Homer introduces Ajax in the catalog of ships, um, Ajax receives the shortest account of any other captain, only getting two lines. So here is back in book two what Homer says about Ajax. Out of Salamis, great Telamonian Ajax led 12 ships, drawn up where Athenian forces formed their line of battle. No other captain is given such a short account. Now, of course, this could ultimately say more about Ajax somehow than it is supposed to say about either Homer or Helen, but we could at least say this, both Helen and Homer, as they look on Ajax um, in these two different catalogs, decide that or they both agree that they ought to say very little about him. Um, which leaves us with, yeah, these three different things that somehow link Helen and Homer. Helen making this robe that captures the war in an image, uh, just as Homer is making a poem about the war. Um, both Helen and Homer offer a kind of catalog of the heroes, and both Helen and Homer say more or less the same thing about Ajax or say very little about Ajax. They agree about how much needs to be said. So what are we to make of this strange detail? Uh, now, I know that there are many of you who are not going to like this, um, but I have to follow the text wherever it goes. Um, it would appear not that Homer is exactly feminine or that he's praising women over men, but that in principle, the activity of singing a story, of singing about, um, about Troy, is not a distinctly masculine activity. Or we could say something like this, that based on the subject matter uh, that Homer chose to concentrate on, he evidently thinks that narrating and contemplating the actions of powerful men of action is a choice-worthy thing to do, something even to dedicate one's life to. But we can also see fairly clearly that Homer does not choose the way of life of a warrior for himself. And as we'll see, the book, uh, as it unfolds, Achilles and others do wonder about their way of life. That it seems like after 10 years of war, there seems to be, on the part of the heroes, maybe because the, the war somehow is not as intrinsically satisfying as they thought that it ought to have been that they have started, at least some of them, to lose confidence in their way of life. And so Homer raises for us the question of the best way of life. And we have to ask how much or how similar are Homer's and Achilles' uh, ways of life? What is the best way of life for a human being, especially a human being of the greatest and most magnificent talents? What is it that they should do? Okay, 
So that's all uh, I have today for book three. Now, there are many events in book three that I didn't comment on. So if you would like to discuss those, by all means, please comment on them, um, and I'd be happy to discuss them. Uh, next time, we turn to book four. I look forward to uh, next time. Uh, Brian Cerberus Wilson out.